This morning, our scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 4, and then verses 42 to 47. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I'm also reading from Our World Belongs to God, the Contemporary Testimony of the Christian Reformed Church. And we'll continue on reading through this um, in these next four weeks in this short uh, worship series on the mission of God's people. This morning I'm going to read Article 31. And then Article 40, or sorry, Article 30, and then Article 41. Article 30 says this The Spirit gathers people from every tongue, tribe, and nation into the unity of the body of Christ. Anointed and sent by the Spirit, the church is thrust into the world, ambassadors of God's peace, announcing forgiveness and reconciliation, proclaiming the good news of grace. Going before them and with them, the Spirit convinces the world of sin and pleads the cause of Christ. Men and women impelled by the Spirit go next door and far away into science and art, media and marketplace, every area of life, pointing to the reign of God with what they do and say. And then Article 41. On the mission of God's people, it says this. Joining the mission of God, the church is sent with the gospel of the kingdom to call everyone to know and follow Christ and to proclaim to all the assurance that in the name of Jesus there is forgiveness of sin and new life for all who repent and believe. The Spirit calls all members to embrace God's mission in their neighborhoods and in the world, to feed the hungry, bring water to the thirsty, Welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and free the prisoner. We repent of leaving this work to a few, for this mission is central to our being. Back in 2010, I was a chaperone on a serve trip 
with a couple dozen high school students from my home church in Holland, Michigan. We traveled from West Michigan to Venastra Community CRC. Our group from Michigan always loved coming to Ontario. And after our first night of worship as a large group, we broke off into small groups for Bible study and prayer. And over the course of the week, after working together and eating together, praying together and worshiping together every day, most of the students were growing closer to each other and more and more excited about living out their faith in Jesus. But there was one person in our group who didn't really want to participate in most of that. I mean, he'd work really hard during the day, but then he wouldn't really engage in the worship or the Bible study questions. He seemed to kind of just mind his own business, not really interested in making new friends. Finally, after kind of pressing him a little bit, he opened up to us about why he didn't want to engage. And he said, you know, look, I've been on these trips before. I know it's fun to get all caught up in this stuff, but then we're just going to leave, and none of it's really going to matter anymore. Maybe I'll read my Bible more for like the first week when I get home. Maybe I'll call a new friend like once or twice, but this experience can't last. So there's no point in getting worked up about it. I know that what he was saying probably wasn't wrong. I'd experienced that myself, right? that kind of spiritual high or that excitement about Jesus and the gospel that just doesn't last too long when you get back in the real world of family, school, normal life. Now, if ever there was an event in the Bible that we might describe as a kind of spiritual high, it'd have to be Pentecost. Last week, Pastor Amanda preached about Jesus' ascension. And part of the account of the ascension in the book of Acts is that Jesus promises the disciples the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus commissions them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth. Just one chapter later in the book of Acts, we see Jesus' promise come true when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. As the disciples had gathered together that day, they could hear the sounds of a busy town around them. Every person speaking their own language. I mean, any day in the marketplace was like a salad bowl of, of different nations and languages trying to haggle over the price of cucumbers and cinnamon. But then another sound drowned out all that noise. It was the sound like a violent wind, like a tornado or like a train flying by at full speed. And the Spirit of God hovered over them and came to rest like a flame on each of the disciples. The Holy Spirit filled them and gave them the ability to speak in other languages, in the languages of the nations that had gathered in the city. And the crowds are amazed. They say, aren't these guys from Galilee? Where'd they learn to speak our language? And the lingering question that we find in Acts 2, verse 12, is what does this mean? Peter is happy to answer the question, and he launches into this Holy Spirit-inspired, revival-caliber sermon on what it means that the Holy Spirit has now been poured out 
on God's people. And what it means that Jesus is the Messiah they'd been waiting for. And so the spectacle of this event, coupled with Peter's sermon, and of course the work of the Holy Spirit, it results in 3,000 people accepting Peter's message and becoming followers of Jesus. But then what? Were there people among the crowd like that guy in my small group at Serve? Were there the skeptics who had seen miracles and revivals before that had quickly petered out? The question of what does this mean may still remain unanswered for some. For Peter to explain it with words was one thing, but would this result in any real substantive change? In other words, does the Holy Spirit-filled gospel message actually change anything? Or is it just a short-lived spectacle? In his commentary on the book of Acts, Will Willimon observes that contemporary religious life is plagued by momentary enthusiasm, periodic outbursts, and superficiality, a short-term high that does not take root in long-term commitment. I mean, we kind of love retreats and new initiatives and big events, don't we? I certainly do. And I remember when a kid, my dad always going to uh, Promise Keepers weekends, or my mom would go to Curcio weekends. I don't know if that was a thing in Canada. But anyway, there's nothing wrong with, with liking retreats or serve projects or whatever. But I guess that there are at least a few among us who can empathize with the guy in my serve group. For many people, well, not all of us, but for many of us, these events result in only momentary enthusiasm, a periodic outburst of commitment, and only temporary transformation. I think our churches may experience this as well. When I was a student at Calvin Seminary, I worked at a church that was going through this revitalization process, this program. It's called the Renewal Lab. And the purpose of this program was to revitalize dying churches by getting them to commit to a kind of outward-looking evangelistic vision and mission. And these are all good things to strive for. And at first, there was a whole lot of excitement from the congregation. I mean, we took this group of volunteers to eight different weekend learning sessions. We had big brainstorm meetings with the congregation. We had these events where we would tell the story of the history of the church and celebrate their history together. And the goal of the program was that at the end, every church involved would then go and plant a new church. This was supposed to set up a new cycle of, of the life of the church, to get them in the habit of growing and multiplying and planting new churches. And again, that's great. That's good. But our church's initial excitement and commitment eventually leveled off. Some people held on to that commitment to neighborhood engagement and evangelism. Some other people left the church entirely. But many people just kind of continued to show up occasionally, kind of between their kids' sports events and weekends at the cottage. In many ways, the church just equalized again. 
And aside from that nice new mission, vision, and value statements and a really nice remodel of the church sanctuary, there wasn't really much institutional transformation. There was no church plant at the end of it for us. I wonder sometimes if we church people are focused so much on our church institutions, on putting the responsibility of transformational missions on a few leaders, on crafting a new vision, on coming up with new or better initiatives and programs, that we kind of end up abdicating our own responsibility in all of it. Missions becomes the task of a few select super-Christians or the church leadership, while the rest of us go on with our lives, learning, playing, working. And that's why the article that I read this morning from the Contemporary Testimony invokes repentance. It says we repent of leaving this work to a few because this mission is actually central to our very being. Missions has become an add-on for special trips, an optional initiative in the life of the church. And after a while, we're just left wondering if those short-term trips and initiatives really make any substantive changes, or if they're just these short-lived spectacles, a spiritual high of sorts. We're left with the question of whether the gospel we profess and proclaim actually changes anything in our daily lives or in our neighborhoods. What does this mean? People asked at Pentecost, and Peter tells them what it means that the Holy Spirit has settled in. It means that the day the prophet Joel spoke about was now at hand, that God's own Spirit was now poured out on God's people. And this spectacle and this message not only drew in thousands of people who became Christ followers that day, it also had a lasting impact on how people lived their lives. The picture of the early church in Acts that follows Pentecost shows us what Pentecost means. Peter's sermon tells us, but this passage later in Acts 2 shows us. See, when Jesus Christ pours out God's Holy Spirit, it may be a spectacle, but it is not only a spectacle, it is the very means by which God goes about the work of building a new community. And our text this morning shows us four habits of the new community that God is building. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. These things are all pretty straightforward. I don't think they actually require too much explanation because they're all pretty familiar practices. They were committed to learning more about Jesus through the teaching of the apostles, through searching their scriptures for insights about this promised Messiah. They were also hospitable to each other and spent time just living their lives together. And they ate together, not only the Lord's Supper, but like normal supper. And they prayed together. It's all so unspectacular in a way. And for those skeptics who wonder if the spectacle of Pentecost would change anything, 
It's like Luke, the author of Acts, is essentially pointing us in the direction of a group of very average-looking people doing a Bethmore Bible study, hanging out at a backyard barbecue, playing volleyball and eating burgers and taco salad, and telling each other, hey, I'm sorry to hear about your sister. Can I pray for you? The glamour and spectacle of the tongues of fire has died down. People have loaded up their donkeys and their carts and settled back into real life. And Luke is saying, now this is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit sticks around and God builds a new community that's committed to God's mission in the world. This is what it looks like for the, church, the Spirit to thrust the church into the world. But it's what God does with this new community in their togetherness that might strike us as a bit more remarkable. We read that they had everything in common, that they willingly sold what they had in order to provide for those in need. Now, this is not a kind of top-down, coercive new society. Like, the apostles didn't force new converts to live this way. This is more the natural outworking of their life together, of those four habits that they cultivated together. See, in this new community, God rearranges a person's priorities. The needs of the poor take precedent over one's own comfort and wealth. God is building a community where the needs of the poor are seen and taken seriously, where the needs of the city become the concern of the church. The needs of the city become the concern of the new church community to such an extent that those needs trump their own desire for personal property, for personal wealth, and for personal power. God uses these very unspectacular habits like sharing a meal together to form a community that is radically concerned for the well-being of those in need. Luke doesn't say that they only gave to other Christians in need. He says they gave to anyone who had need. And then, as a result, they enjoyed the favor of all people. That means that people in their community who weren't part of the church actually liked the church and spoke highly of the church. Can you imagine? And it seems especially hard to imagine that given the very mixed and damaged witness of the broader church in the last 15 months. Here in Acts, God is building a new community that responds to the needs of the city in such effective and selfless ways that it's like people see the difference they're making and speak of the church in glowing terms at town hall meetings and in the local newspaper. I knew a group of university students who went to Guatemala one spring for a class on intercultural ministry. They had about 10 days together where they did a lot of the same stuff that the early church did. They learned more about Jesus from a local man who would lead them in Bible studies and introduce them to local ministries. They hung out and they played euchre a lot. They went on hikes through the jungle around volcanoes. They ate a lot of beans and fried plantains together. And they spent every day in worship and prayer. 
They prayed for the local ministries. They praised God for what God was already doing in Guatemala. Toward the end of the trip, they spent a day visiting some, some very rural communities, uh, some of the poorest people in the country. And in these villages, they experienced such over-the-top generosity and hospitality. One village offered every student a fresh-from-the-fire tamale, something usually reserved for only the very most special occasions. And the students, while they were there, learned about the needs of these communities, and they prayed for them. One community mentioned that they were saving up their money. They were pooling their money together to save up for a communal cow which they would use for milk and for cheese. So at the end of the tour, the students all agreed that they also wanted to contribute money to this cow fund, if the villagers would be okay with that. They contributed their money, and the village purchased their cow. On the grand scale of things, it wasn't really that spectacular of a gesture. But it also wasn't meant to be. This was just the natural outworking of the Spirit's work in this community of students that God had drawn together. The time they spent committed to learning from their Guatemalan teacher, the time spent in fellowship over food and in prayer, all of that was God's work of building up a community where the needs of the people around them became their concerns. Shane Claiborne shows another example of this. So he's a member of a community called The Simple Way. This community is committed to living in the same way that the early followers of Jesus lived. The people in this Simple Way community, they pray together each day. They hang out in their neighborhood. They help kids with their homework. They share dinners together each week. And they have a Sabbath day where everything just rests. But they also work together on social and systemic injustices in their neighborhood. They work together to get guns off the streets. They're looking at ways to help create more local jobs, to create more sustainable housing. The simple way is pretty well known in some Christian circles, and so they get a lot of outside visitors who come to kind of see how they operate. And Shane says that when they get visitors who come for a week, he'll always ask them at the end what they learned. And he says that more often than not, people just say that we learn that it's not that spectacular and that we can do this right where we are. All those retreats and mission trips and special events and programs, they all have their rightful place in our lives and in our church. But if you come home from something like that and you wonder, okay, so what now? Well, then be encouraged by this little paragraph in Acts 2. This is what it looks like when the spiritual high of Pentecost settles into daily life. This is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit thrusts us into the world as ambassadors of God's peace, into science and art media, and marketplace into every area of life. It may be as simple as sharing a cup of coffee with a neighbor on the porch, offering to pull some weeds for the neighbors who can't get around as easily anymore, or sending a card to someone who is sick and committing to pray for them. 
It may be as simple as following up with those neighbors who you reached out to over the winter in our winter challenge. Or it may be as big and complex and messy as advocating for affordable housing in this city, advocating for livable wages, for equal access to health care, or for the rights and dignity of incarcerated people. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dig in even more into what the mission of God looks like in our daily lives. See, this is how God builds a community that is characterized by long-term commitment to God, to each other, and then to our cities. The gospel we received and believe does change things, and not just in here, but also out there, right? As God rearranges our priorities, as God makes the needs of this city the concerns of this church, the Spirit calls and so equips all members to embrace God's mission in our neighborhoods and in the world. And so in this reality, we can join the early church to someday soon break bread together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, even maybe enjoying the favor of all people. As God continues the good work of drawing people into this transforming story of grace. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this gift of your word. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. And may your spirit dwell among us richly as you continue the work of building us up into a community that's a light to the people around us. Not so that we look good, not so that people like us, but for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your coming kingdom. Amen.